Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the assurance and the truth contained in the Holy Scriptures. I pray, Lord, uh, that this message will be faithful to your word. Uh, Father, I pray that by your spirit, you will be transforming and changing all of your people to be more like Jesus Christ and that you will be bringing in those who don't know him yet uh, to bless them and to love them. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, a few years ago, I worked for a company called Vodafone uh, and I had this colleague called Steve. So he's a real person. This is a real situation. Um, and I loved him. Um, we were really good uh, workmates. We enjoyed uh, similar things. We'd drink coffees all the time, uh, too much, uh, too many cafetiers at times. Uh, we'd go out to lunch together. Um, it was great. And the, the job was quite stressful. And so often uh, we'd kind of be a sounding board for each other and we'd encourage each other um, when times got tough. He actually made going to work for me really, really enjoyable. And one day he came up to me really excitedly to tell me um, that this coming September, he'd been accepted onto a place to do his PGCE for teacher training. He was so excited. I was gutted and I really struggled to hide it. In fact, I didn't hide it. It was all over my face, my body language. Um, it was great for him. He was going to do something that he'd always wanted to do, to be a primary school teacher. Um, but for me, selfishly, I felt like I was just being left behind. Uh, I was just going to miss him. Uh, there, was there was no benefit to me whatsoever. I was just losing a great work colleague. Um, and we've probably all experienced similar things to this, whether it's somebody that's come to Charlotte Chapel for a number of weeks, months, years, and we've grown to love them and get to know them. And then all of a sudden, a job opportunity takes them to Abu Dhabi or London or somewhere else. They're off to this new exciting opportunity and we're left behind missing them. The passage that I'm going to be preaching from today deals with similar themes, uh, departure and being left. However, the implications are significantly different. You see, the departure of Jesus, unlike my friend Steve, um, was a good thing. It was good for the world and it was especially good for those who Jesus left behind. So let's have a look why. We'll just um, jump into the context really quickly again. Remember, we're in the upper room. Um, so it's Jesus's final earthly hours um, before he's handed over to the Roman authorities for crucifixion. And so with, with that time, he celebrates the Passover meal with his most dearly loved disciples and he teaches them. He teaches them um, about relationship to him and what's to come. And if you remember over the past few weeks, uh, we've been looking at the fact that Jesus confirmed he is the true fruit bearing vine. And that to live a life pleasing to God, to bear fruit for God, you must live in joyful obedience to him. And the response from that, from the world, is hatred and persecution. And so he continues. Let's look together at verses four onwards. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. So Jesus tells his disciples that he's leaving. It's, it's not the first time, far from it. The other gospels record it and from the gospel of John as well, he's been telling them since at least chapter 13. 
And he tells them, he uses the term go or going away six or seven times in this passage alone. And so they're aware of it, but they're sad. In fact, it's greater than sad. It's worse than sad. It says that they're filled with grief. Why? Well, it's very likely that they'll miss him. Three years they've spent following their master, eating with him ministering alongside him, listening to his words of everlasting life, experiencing themselves his tender care. No doubt when he wasn't praying for them all night, that they would have slept alongside one another, drinking from the fountain of his supernatural wisdom, watching and learning from his compassion for the brokenhearted and from the, for the socially rejected. They loved him. They loved him. And so no wonder they were filled with grief when he tells them that he's going. Also, not to forget the context of what we looked at last week, that Jesus had just guaranteed to them the hatred and persecution of the world, the excommunication from their synagogues, uh, likely social and family rejection, and almost sure sudden death. And now to top it off, their master's leaving them. And so that's why verse 7 is quite surprising. Look at verse 7. He says, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. I think this would have hit them like a stone between the eyes, you know, like, uh, how? How, how, Jesus, how is this good that you are going away? How is it for our good? Well, he tells them, uh, and this is how we're gonna look at the rest of the passage under, under two headings. So Jesus' departure is good for the disciples because firstly, they will receive the Holy Spirit. Just look down at the second half of verse seven with me. He says, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So this second half of verse seven actually contains one of the most profound theological realities in all of scripture. So we're just going to pause here and just have a look at it. So th there seems to be a condition. So Jesus is saying the advocate will not come. What's the condition? Unless I go away. And so Jesus has been speaking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit already, but he's yet to connect his necessary departure to his necessary coming. OK, the question is then why? Why must Jesus leave before the Spirit can come? It's not because the Spirit and Jesus have had a fallout and they can't be in the same room. That's ridiculous. Um, but it's because of what the Holy Spirit does. It's because of his ministry. And here it is. The spirit applies the finished, the completed work of Jesus Christ. You see, in verse seven, Jesus says, I'm going away. The, the, the route that Jesus takes is through the cross. Jesus, by his perfect life and by his death as a, as a substitute, secures the forgiveness for God's people. And in his resurrection, he declares not only his victory over death, but his defeat of Satan and the power of sin. And then as he ascends to the right hand of the father and takes his seat, he sits to reign over all creation and he ushers in the age of the new covenant, the age of the church. And so the spirit cannot come to apply all of this work, all of this achievement until it's all fully done. And so the death burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus must happen before the spirit can come and apply it. Galatians 4.4 4 says, when the time had fully come, 
God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. So the set time had come. God's plan to rescue his people had moved into a new stage, a new era, the new covenant. Uh, and that meant that now not only Jews, but Gentiles could receive all of the blessings that Jesus won. All of the blessings, that's justification, the forgiveness of sins, sanctification being set apart, redemption, sonship, adoption into God's family, co-heirs with Christ, that we will reign with him forever. That, that verse in Galatians continues so that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are sons, uh, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And so the spirit could not come until Jesus had left because the work won by Jesus on the cross, his life, and death and resurrection needed to be applied by the spirit into the hearts of those who believe. And so I think it's appropriate just to just to stop right here. Surely this truth has got to be a point of praise for God this morning. That me and you were once lost Gentile sinners. And but because of his grace, the time had come for the son of God to be born of a woman, to live under the law and to die a criminal's death and to be raised again for our justification. And it's his life, death, resurrection and the pouring out of the spirit that makes us sons and daughters of God, that we are heirs of a kingdom that will never, ever perish. In fact, that we're to rule with Jesus Christ one day, that we're to be set apart in this world as holy. So wherever you are this morning, uh, whatever you're feeling, we can praise God for this amazing, gracious, generous and unthinkable plan of salvation. So Jesus must go for the spirit to come. And when the spirit does come, Jesus says about his ministry, this, these two things. Firstly, that he will convict the world of guilt. Look with me at verses eight to 11. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. And so Jesus identifies uh, the Spirit's work in the world and he connects it to his own ministry. So he talks about sin, so the world being steeped in sin, but particularly the sin of rejecting Jesus. And so the immediate context here, the Jewish authorities that did not believe Jesus. But then largely, as it goes out, the entire world system that's opposed to Jesus Christ and to his rule and the spirit as he comes convicts the world of this rejection of Jesus Christ of righteousness so the world is unrighteous the the, the scriptures tell us that all over no one is good um, uh, but this and the spirit convicts the world of this failure to meet God's standard but more importantly and more specifically the spirit convicts the world and demonstrates the true righteousness of Jesus Christ. How? By demonstrating or by revealing the fact that he resurrected and went to the father. And then judgment, verse 11, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So here the spirit will convict, i.e. he will prove the world wrong um, about judgment. And so the prince of this world specifically refers to Satan, who has already been judged Jesus in his 
in his life, death and resurrection, has declared victory over sin and against the devil. Um, and, and in a sense, uh, the defeat of Satan, this, this um, declaration of Jesus Christ's resurrection and his defeat uh, over him is a, is a picture. It's a picture of the final judgment to come, the final victory that's already in God's hand, where he will win victory over death uh, and all evil once and for all. And so when the spirit comes, he convicts. But his second, uh, this second ministry, this twofold ministry, is that he conveys. He conveys the word of God. Look at verse 12 uh, and onwards with me. Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will speak what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me. Because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me and he will make known to you. So the Holy Spirit will bring about a ministry of revelation. I mean, just look at these verbs. Jesus says, I've got much more to say to you. And then he says, but the Spirit of truth, he will guide you. Though he will not speak on his own, he will speak whatever he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me. He will make known, verse 15. Jesus reminds his disciples that when the Spirit comes, he is going to lead them into all truth. He is going to reveal Jesus' will and words, things that he's forgotten, thing, uh, things that they'd forgot, and things that they'd not yet known. And so now we as the church, we have the letters of the New Testament, the complete words and works of Jesus recorded by the Spirit through the apostles. Jesus here says that the Spirit, verse 13, will tell you what is yet to come. And you can't help but think that the same John who penned this gospel is the same John who penned the book of Revelation. Talk about knowledge to come. The, the new Jerusalem as it descends from heaven. That, that vision of white hot worship around the throne of the Lamb. All God's people shouting, worthy is the Lamb, glory, praise and honour be to him. He says that the Spirit will glorify Jesus. So he, he won't speak on his own, but demonstrates true humility in that he just points to the Lord Jesus Christ. He points to the Son of God. So the Spirit will continue the work of Jesus through the church, initially through the apostles, then through the church at Pentecost and down through the ages through to us here. And this same spirit that indwelt the apostles is the one who inhabits you and me today. And so essentially his ministry is the same. So just as the apostles spoke about sin and righteousness and judgment, we're called, we're called to speak about sin. Yes, primarily the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. He's not a take it or leave it. He commands all men everywhere to repent and to trust in the one he has sent. But we're also to speak out against sin elsewhere. We should be speaking out against the horrors of things like child trafficking. We should be speaking out against abuse and racism and corporate greed that leaves individuals and countries systemically poor. 
and our speaking out should lead to action too. We should contact our local uh, councillors, etc., um, whoever it might be, when laws are coming in that are clearly sinful and destructive and damaging for human beings. We're called to speak out against sin. We're called to speak um, against unrighteousness by holding up the righteousness of Christ. Uh, his righteousness in all areas, whether it's the purity of sexuality, whether it's the, the cl cleanness of our language, whether it's um, the, the righteous affections that we should have towards other image bearers. We're called to hold up Jesus Christ's righteousness. We're called to hold up his righteousness uh, when we see um, uh, abuse and um, neglect towards individuals, whether um, they are rich or poor, whether they are black or white. We're called to love our neighbour in line with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're called to love our enemies in line with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so it's a challenge. How are we doing? So we're called to speak about sin and righteousness. We're called to speak to of judgment. Our culture has so many um, contradictory and contrasting uh, ideas about what would make the world a better place, whether it's uh, more money or no money at all, uh, whether it's political unity or political segregation, whether it's racial inclusion or racial segregation, uh, whether it's just simple philosophies like be kind. If everyone was just kind, then the world would be a better place. But the truth is the only thing that will make the world better is sin destruction is the removal of sin from this world and that will one day happen that's what the final judgment will result in a world cleansed of sin cleansed of evil free from wickedness and so our job is to speak of this future and final catastrophic judgment that's coming the Lord is coming to judge all human beings, me, you, every single person. And his standard is perfection. And so therefore, the only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you're watching this today and you're not a Christian, do you believe this? Do you know Jesus Christ? There's a sense the, the Bible tells us that the Lord has put eternity in the hearts of human beings. And so we are going to live eternally one way or the other, either in glory in the new creation with Jesus, because we have been forgiven of our sins and brought into his family, or eternally in hell, paying for the price of our sins because we've rejected God and we have uh, lived a life that is completely self-centered. And I want to encourage you today, um, there's an opportunity right now, today, to repent, say sorry for your sin, turn from the path that you're on, look towards Jesus as saviour, and find full and full forgiveness forever for all of your sins. And God will grant you his spirit uh, and he will bring you into his family and grant you everlasting life. Please do that today. So we're to speak uh, of the guilt of the world. We're also called to speak God's words. Okay, so unlike the apostles, uh, we're not going to be those who uh, write inspired scripture. Um, but in a sense, we point to that revealed scripture. We point to its authority. We point to what Jesus has already said and done. And so this is, uh, for us as the church, so important. Not that we just point to those that don't know Jesus and tell them to 
to, to submit to him, but that we encourage one another in these truths and encourage one another uh, of God's promises towards us. So there are just a, just a few here that I want to want to read out that we might want to maybe after the service look to remind ourselves of or to, to encourage one another of. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.29, God has promised that if we search for him, we will find him. He's not playing hard to get. Uh, read Psalm 121. Uh, God promises protection for his children. He likens himself to a vigilant watchman over Israel. Uh, 1 Chronicles 16.34 says that God has promised that his love will never fail. He's faithful in every way. Romans 8.28 says that God has promised all things will work out for good for his children. And so this is a a broader hope that keeps us um, encouraged in really tough times. And lastly, 2 Corinthians 1.3-4 says that God has promised comfort in our trials and that he has a plan and that one day we will be able to share the comfort that we receive from him with others. And so brothers and sisters, let's be a church uh, that leads one another into truth and by the power and presence of the spirit. Okay, so Jesus' departure is good for the disciples because the spirit will come, but it doesn't stop there. The second point is that they will receive immovable Joy. It is good for the disciples that Jesus goes because they will receive immovable joy. And so having told the disciples this, uh, what's just what we've just spoken about, um, he then tells them again in verse 16 that he's leaving them. And this kind of sends them into a bit of a confusion in verses 17 and 18. They're like, hang on, wait a minute. You're going, but only for a little while. And then we'll see you again in a little while. And they're confused. And to be honest, I think we would be as well, especially if we'd have expected, like many of them did, many of the disciples did, that the Messiah's kingdom would be an an immediate consummation. And so they certainly, as we wouldn't have done, they certainly didn't expect the Messiah to come uh, and suffer and die and rise again. It's only with the revelation of the spirit in the New Testament that we can see that more clearly. And so in spite of their confusion, Jesus, in his graciousness, he helps them. Uh, he clarifies it for them. He assures them that though they will have sorrow, their sorrow will be turned to joy. Verse 20. And then he says that their joy will never be taken away. Verse 22. No one will take your joy from you. And here's why. Let's look at verses 23 and 24. He says, in that day, you will no longer ask me for anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name until now you have not asked for anything in my name ask and you will will receive and your joy will be complete so verse 23 in that day so again he's his parting from them jesus is pointing to the day where he will leave them via the cross his death and resurrection and the coming of the spirit and all that the spirit will apply for god's people in that day jesus is saying My father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And so they have complete joy because firstly, they have complete access to the father. Jesus has already been talking about this from uh, earlier on in John's gospel, but particularly we looked at it in John 15. And Jesus has been pointing this out to them. 
But now what he's linking is his departure and the access that that brings. He's saying in verse 23, whatever you ask in my name, it's Jesus's victory over sin, Satan and death that now brings this new and complete access to God the Father. In my name, Jesus says, he represents them. He represents the disciples and he represents us. They and we have fatherly access because of what Jesus has done. And so unlike the Catholic Church that says we need to approach God through Mary or through the saints, or unlike Islam that says that we need to adhere to some five pillars in order to please God, not that they could even know whether they please God or not, or the Jehovah's Witness system that says in order to stand on street corners and knock on doors, uh, you will then please God. According to Jesus, it's in his name, it's because of his departure via the cross, his life, death and resurrection, that we can have full access to God the Father. And I don't think we meditate on this enough in evangelical circles. I love this picture by Tim Keller. I think I've used this before, but he does the story of a, a an unkempt homeless person um, stinking of cigarettes and booze and, and stumbling up to Buckingham Palace. And he says, let me see the king. He cries out. And obviously the guards look at each other. Not on your Nelly. He says, let me in. And they stand back a little bit more. And yet he pulls out of his pocket a handwritten invitation with the king's signature and the signet stamped on it. He has the authority from the king. He comes in the name of the king. And so the gates fly open and he has access. That's us. We because of Jesus Christ, have access to the Father in his name. And, and I just wonder if we believe this as a church, if we believe this as individuals corporately, how would this transform our lives? How would it transform our prayer lives? How would this truth help you face Monday morning? Monday morning when you're left alone again in the house with the children. Uh, when you are at home with your husband who isn't a believer, when you go to work with the increased stresses and strains of post-lockdown, how would access to God through the name of Jesus Christ transform the way you apply for the job for the 30th time and still receive no contact back? It means you can cry out to him. It means you can go directly to prayer to him, knowing that he knows all things and that he cares for you supremely. You can ask him for wisdom. Grant me wisdom in this situation. Grant me patience, Lord, because you have direct access to him. This should transform every aspect of our lives. So we have complete access. The disciples also um, have the constant love of the Father. Look with me at verse 26. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Throughout John, Jesus has been spending um, so much of his time talking about his relationship with the Father. I am always about my father's business. I and the father are one. I love the father. I keep the father's commandments. But now 
he says, I'll speak plainly about my father. And he introduces the disciples to the reality of the father's love for them. Verse 27, the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. The father loves the disciples because they have faith, because they believe in Jesus Christ. And so the application for us is so clear. If we have faith in Jesus Christ, then we love God and we have the love of the father. But the disciples, as well as us, we need we need supernatural revelation to understand the magnitude of the love of God, the father. You see, back in chapter 14, the disciples had said, um, show us the father. Do you remember Philip said, show us the father. Uh, and Jesus says, have you been with me so long? Have you been with me so long, Philip, that you don't know him? Jesus says, if you see me, you've seen the father. And so if we want to be as disciples of Jesus, if we want to be assured of the love of the father, we need to look at Jesus Christ. And so let's think of how Jesus demonstrated his love for his people, for the disciples and for us. It was the ultimate, the ultimate price he paid. Greater love has no one than this, the one who lays down his life for his friends. So a picture of the, the, the father's love is a picture of Jesus, which is a picture of sacrificial, costly, poured out love. You see, it was the father who instigated the cross. It was him that set the plan in motion. He chose that way. It was him who, from the foundation of the world, set his love to rescue a people unworthy in and of themselves to be part of his family. And so this morning, this evening, whenever you're watching this, brother or sister, if you're believing in Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, then this love of the father, this eternal plan, this rescue via the cross uh, has been done for you, for you specifically. And love like this, it should move us. Who loves us like this? Who loves us to the point of death? No one but God. And not only that, he knows us. He knows us intimately, all of our weaknesses, all of our failures, all of our sin, all of our hypocrisy. And yet, he loves us like this. And he's committed to transforming us, to, to, to making us more like Jesus to more into the people that we should be. And so this truth should be transforming us, each and every one of us. And so when you hear that lie whispered to your heart, you're not loved or that you're worthless. Remember how loved you are. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Look to the gospel. If you want to see how much you loved, look at Jesus's words. I lay my life down for the sheep. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Do you want to know the Father's heart? Look at Jesus. Look at his sacrifice. Look at all that he gave up in order to rescue sinful rebels like us. I hope we get this. The disciples in verse 29, they seemed like they got it. Ah, oh, we, we understand. Now we know that you're from God. But they didn't really. They needed the, 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 the power of the Spirit to come. They needed post-resurrection understanding to understand this. And for us, in order for us to fully understand that Jesus, what Jesus came to do, it cannot be understood as, apart from his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection. This was the hour that he was talking about. 
It's by this hour, it's through the cross, it's through his death and resurrection that he overcomes the world. Ironically, he overcomes the world by submitting to death. And he finishes on this, as I will finish. In the world, you will have tribulation, but, a really important word there, but, take heart, I have overcome the world. It's a perfect tense. It means it's happened and the effects have lasted into the future. He's overcome the world. And so for, for me, my friend Steve leaving was awful. Um, I really missed him. For him, it was great. He's still a teacher now and he loves it. Um, but actually, for, for the disciples and for us, Jesus's departure was the supreme good. Because if it wasn't, the spirit would not be poured out. We would not have had the conviction of our sin. We would not have been brought into God's family. And we would not have had revealed to us the great love of the Father. And so, brothers and sisters, what truths to finish on? Let me pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we want to praise you for your boundless, your uh, deep and perfect and sacrificial love to a people such as us, a people that are by nature deserving of wrath. We want to thank you that you have so graciously reached out to us that in the person of your son at the cost of his life we've been brought into your family lord may the truth of your love move us shape us meditate us encourage us whatever day or week we're having lord may we meditate upon your great love for us Greatest in Christ's name.